familiar with this story, whether you grew up in the church or whether you didn't, uh, but hopefully you'll see this story differently after our time together. Uh, with that in mind, let's start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 16. I'd love for everybody to have a, a printed copy of God's word out in front of them. With that in mind, hear the word of the Lord to us. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought uh, to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together? Now, Father, as we dive into your word and study righteous Abel and his brother Cain, Lord, we pray that we would see rightly. Uh, Father, that we would see sin and see the gospel in all its clarity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, have y'all ever had the privilege of going to the eye doctor? Raise your hand if you wear glasses or lenses. I asked that last week. I should have called this series Linton Lenses or something pithy like that. Uh, but I love this image of lenses because each week we're going to be uh, looking at sin, hopefully more and more clear uh, each week. Uh, so if you've been to the optometrist, you know, the eye doctor, you know that crazy machine that you put your face up against, you know, that smells like, you know, alcohol because they've cleaned it off for you when you put your nose on it. And it's got the big machine. Uh, Google told me it was called a philropter which sounds like a dinosaur, but I guess that's what they call it. I don't know if we have any optometrists in the church, uh, but you know what I'm talking about, the big machine where they say, you know, slide A or B, A, or it's very calming, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, in this series, uh, you know, of Linton lenses, if you will, uh, you know, hopefully each week uh, we're like that machine where gradually we're starting to see things more and more clear. Uh, so if you were here last week, I suggested to you uh, that the way that we should be seeing sin as three primordial temptations of pleasure, possessions, and pride. And we see that primarily in the first story of sin, of original sin, if you want to call it that, in the temptation of the fruit with Adam and Eve. And today we're picking right back up in Genesis, now in Genesis chapter 4, and I want you to see the story of Cain and Abel hopefully in a more clear light. 
Uh, but what is it that we're supposed to be seeing in the story of Cain and Abel? Or what do I want you to maybe look through uh, the lens of uh, to see this story? Uh, well, I thought it would be helpful to just categorize it in sort of three things. Maybe this is helpful, maybe it's not. Uh, but we're going to look at it through the lens of the offering, the door, and the ground. And so that's going to be the way that we work through this passage. So what do we need to see in the offering? Because really worship and making an offering to the Lord is at the heart of what this story is all about. Uh, look with me again at Genesis chapter 4, and we'll read the first five verses, but try to read it like you've never heard this story before. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what is it that we're supposed to see from this uh, famous story of Cain and Abel and their offering? Uh, well, you know, John Steinbeck, the famous uh, author uh, in the last century, wrote a book, uh, uh, an allegory of the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, he wrote these uh, timeless words. Uh, it says uh, in, the, in East of Eden, he writes, uh, you know, one of the characters, Samuel, says these words, two stories have haunted us and followed us from our beginning, Samuel said. We carry them along with us like invisible tales, the story of original sin and the story of Cain and Abel. And I don't understand either of them. I don't understand them at all, but I feel them. I think what Steinbeck is getting at in this story is even if we don't know uh, all the ins and outs of, the, of theology and exactly what the Bible is doing with these stories, we often feel these stories to be true. So what is going on with this sort of ordinary grudge, this very relatable resentment towards God? that we see in this story. And that should not be lost on you, that what happens in Cain's heart, uh, if that were one of your friends, if you were one of Cain's friends, you would be very tempted to nurse that grudge against his brother. You would be very tempted to uh, dismiss away any resentment that he has against God. <sighs> That's just God. Mm. It's so relatable. I mean, Cain, He's going to church. He's even giving. He's doing all the right. He even gives to the Lord an offering. And this is God's response. Mm, well, that's just God. There's a very relatable, almost ordinary, tiny little speck, a tiny little seed of sin that you and I would just might as well dismiss. In fact, we may have actually even poured water on it. So what is this going on in this story? Well, look at verse one. It says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. If you don't know what that means, ask your parents later this afternoon for a fun talk. What happens with Adam and Eve, of course, is we know that they fall into sin. Uh, but if you were to sort of step back and look more broadly at Genesis, you may remember in Genesis chapter three, where the fall happens, God makes a very distinct promise to Eve. In fact, it's the first promise of a redeemer. Uh, many theologians call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. And it's in Genesis 3.15. And what God promises Eve 
is he says something very specific. He says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And if you go to Genesis 3.15, essentially what God is promising Eve is there will be conflict between the serpent, evil, right? Satan, who we'll know him as later in the Bible, evil and the offspring of Eve. One of Eve's descendants will go to war with the great serpent. And what happens is that God says is the serpent will strike this offspring by the heel but he will step and crush on the head of the serpent. And so, of course, that's the first promise of a redeemer who would be a human, an offspring of Eve, who comes to undo the works of the devil. And in fact, that's what the New Testament tells us Jesus has come to do, is to undo the works of the devil. Uh, You know that movie, The Passion of the Christ? Uh, You shouldn't watch it, but if you have seen it, it's a very powerful movie and my favorite scene of it. You know the Mel Gibson movie? You remember that one? Yeah. No one knows that movie. It's a shocking. It's a, it's a pretty famous movie. Uh, my favorite scene in that movie is when Jesus is praying in the garden. You may have you know, seen this scene, and he's, he's praying in Aramaic. It's very strange if you've never heard Aramaic. But there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is praying, and you know he's sweating, and he's very distressed. It's the night he's betrayed. And Satan appears, and a snake comes around, and he circles around Jesus' foot. And Jesus is, hears the um, Roman soldiers coming for him, and Jesus is shaking because it's uh, so distressing. And uh, Satan seems like he's finally going to get Jesus to break down. And then Jesus looks at him with this totally different perspective, a face of determination. And then he does what? He steps and crushes the serpent by the head. It's pretty awesome. It's a reference all the way back to Genesis. And it's a promise that a human being would one day destroy the works of the devil. And it's on page three of your Bible that redemption would come by a person. And the reason you need to know that is because when Adam and Eve have a son, that's what's on her mind. And who's her first son? Cain. And she says, I've gotten a son, a man. She says a man. That's hilarious. She uses the word man. She doesn't say, I've got a boy. So I've got a man. Why does she want the man? Because this may be the one to undo the works of the devil. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then amazingly, in verse 2, what happens then? She has another son, Abel. And those two sons, they grow up to be slightly different. Uh, One is a keeper of sheep, and the other is a worker of the ground. And the word ground there is going to be important. You can underline it. It keeps being repeated over and over again. And that's one of the ways the Bible tells you something's important, if it keeps repeating it. And now, we don't need to read too much into this. Uh, I think it's just establishing that Abel and Cain had different occupations. Uh, One is a shepherd, one is a farmer. And then, of course, what happens in the offering, uh, right there in verse 3, it says, in the course of time, uh, that just means, you know, at some indefinite time in the future, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, but no regard for Cain's offering. So how are we supposed to understand this? Why, I mean, does it, isn't this just like God to just like be so arbitrary that he would like one and not like the other? Is that really what's going on in this story? Is that what's being established in Genesis? Well, I don't think so. And in fact, I don't think that's what the text is teaching at all. Instead, what we're seeing is uh, a consistent principle in the Bible uh, that you, can, you, you need to carry with you whenever you read the Bible. And that is God's reaction to someone 
the way that God responds to people is always a reflection of their heart. It's always in response to what's going on internally with them. God is not picking on Cain and causing Cain to be angry. There is a difference between the way that Cain worships the Lord, and there's a difference between the way Abel is worshiping the Lord, and God is reacting to the heart of the person. And we see that because Cain brings of an offering, but it's just an offering of his normal stuff. Instead, what does Abel bring? Abel, it says, he brings of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, you know, if you're the kind of person that doesn't like fat on your meat, you'd be like, why would you want the fatty portions? You know, that's the part I toss in the garbage, right? Well, you know, back then, this was the delicious part. This was the best of the best. And so the difference between Cain and Abel, of course, is that righteous Abel is bringing an offering to the Lord that costs him something. He's missing out on the best of his food, and he's giving it to the Lord. And why do we give like that? I mean, why do we give sacrificially? I mean, when you really love somebody, when you love your kids or your spouse or your friends, and you go way above what, what, a, what a normal gift would be, why do you go way above sometimes? Because it's a demonstration of your love for that person. There's a sense that love just pulls extravagance out of your heart, that you just want to go above and beyond the call of duty. And that's what we're seeing in Abel. He goes above and beyond what he has to give because he loves the Lord and the Lord is worth everything that he has. I'm gonna give you the best of the best. And this is why you know, I, I would suggest to you that there isn't really a percentage for giving that you and I are, are called to give to the Lord. Uh, I don't think the New Testament teaches that at all. Uh, but I would tell you that whatever we give to the Lord, it should be to the point that it hurts you because a percentage may not actually hurt your income. I mean, if you have a certain level of income, a percentage may not affect you all that much. But I think whatever we give, there should be a level of sacrifice to it. Does that make sense? There should be things that we don't enjoy because we're generous people to the Lord and to the poor. There, are, there, was, a, there was a meal, maybe even multiple meals, that Abel would have loved to have enjoyed that he didn't enjoy because he gave them to the Lord. Cain, on the other hand, we don't know exactly what he gave to the Lord, but we do know that God's reaction to Cain is the lens through which we see Cain. For whatever reason, Cain's heart wasn't really in it. Uh, you know, this is why John Steinbeck says these stories carry with us like invisible tales. Because every Sunday, there are men and women who come to church and they're just going through the motions. They're just Cain. They're there, they're giving, but their hearts are from far from God. Their hearts are far from God. In fact, they've never been born again. They've gone through all of the motions, but they've never seen clearly. <laughs> they've never seen themselves, their sin, and God for the clarity that they're called to. But every Sunday, there are also righteous people like Abel who give extravagantly, who just love the Lord. You know, these are stories that walk with us through life. So we see the difference between Cain and Abel and the offering. You know, Cain, uh, you know, I want to just real quick, you know, there's no, I don't think there's, this is like 
God doesn't like vegetarians. You know, you read this story and it's like, Cain is the vegetarian and Abel is the meat producer. So God's like, I don't like the, you know, I think, you know, most commentators would say that's misunderstanding the story. It's not trying to say that, you know, shepherds are better than farmers. Uh, God accepts both of those offerings later on in Leviticus. That's missing the point. The point is God's responding to their hearts. Uh, so I guess if I could sort of summarize, when you look at the offering of Cain and Abel, uh, if you were to look at these first five verses, uh, reflect and just ask yourself, um, if you were Cain's friend, if Cain was your buddy, and he walks past you, and he's very angry, and his face is fallen, and he's like, I gave the Lord an offering, and he didn't even want it. How would you and I respond? That's just God. We would have a tendency, a tendency to downplay the holiness of God. We would have a tendency to dismiss the grudge. And if you have a tendency to downplay sin, friends, you know what you're doing? That's like, you know what you're doing? You're taking the lens off. You're doing that. Eh, I don't want to see that right now. So what are we supposed to see at the door? What are we supposed to see at the door? Well, to me, this is the heart of the whole passage. Now look with me at verse six. Cain is angry, his face is looking down, he's downcast. And so what does the Lord do? Does he just let him wallow in his anger? No, no. Uh, God does his favorite thing, which is also Jesus's favorite thing, which is he starts to ask questions. Look at verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, behold, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I mean, the first thing I want you to see is the fatherly tone of God in this passage. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do in my Bible is to make a little question mark sign uh, not to the passages that I don't understand. I always try to make a little question mark sign whenever God's asking a question or whenever Jesus asks a question. And it's remarkable how often God uses questions uh, to sort of get a response out of somebody. Uh, years ago, I preached a sermon series here called Questions God Asks. And God never asks questions to get information out of people. Uh, you can go back as early in the Bible as Genesis 3, right? And so uh, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, What's the first thing that God says when he walks in the garden? You remember what's his question? Where are you? You think God doesn't know where they are? Why is he asking that? Where are you? You ever ask somebody that question? Where are you? I don't get where you're coming from. Where are you even coming from? And then they tell God what happened. And then how does God respond? Do you remember? They said, oh, we were naked and shamed. And so we hid ourselves in the bush when we heard you coming. And then what's the very next thing God says? Well, you screwed up. Shame on you. Is that what he says? He says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Do you hear the voice of the father? Now the next generation of humanity is carrying on that old family tradition that Hank Williams Jr. told you about last week. And the family tradition continues on down through Cain. And now Cain has a grudge in his heart that you and I would dismiss or, or, or nurse quite possibly, certainly not call Cain out on that. 
Cain has a little speck, um, you know, just a tiny little blip on the CAT scan. Just a tiny little thing, just a tiny little virus. It won't grow into anything more, right? Just a little speck. And what does God do? Look at verse 6. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Pretty good question. Not the only time God asks a, a, a man that. Remember that guy Jonah? He has to ask Jonah that. Is it right for you to be so angry? Then he asks another question. Why is your face fallen? Okay, that doesn't mean that he has like Bell's palsy and his face is like, like that. You know, what that means is, you know, Hebrew just means he's doing this. You know, he's doing, um, who's the kid from Peanuts? You know, that walks like this. Charlie Brown, he's doing the Charlie Brown walk, right? Charlie Brown walks like that, doesn't he? His face is looking down. And then verse seven, he does what? Asks another question. Uh, literally what he says in the Hebrew is he says, if you do, not do, if you do well, will, you, will there not be uplift? You know, why are you looking down? If you do well, won't there be uplift? And then God gives him a very fatherly warning. If you don't do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, uh, literally it says its desire is for you, like it wants to consume you, but you must rule over it. You see, what I want to suggest to you that we need to see at the door, uh, this image of sin crouching at the door, that's the image that God gives to Cain, right? He says sin is crouching like a door and you're about to open the door and buddy, you have no idea what's waiting behind that door. Uh, you know, nobody uh, explains this passage, uh, I think, better than Tim Keller. And uh, he, you know, he, he says in this passage, uh, he, he gives insight that I think is so helpful. Uh, Keller says, we drastically underestimate the power of sin. Sin, by its nature, hides itself. It crouches at your door. It always looks smaller than it is. But there is hope in the gospel. You know, I want you to focus on this image of the door, if you can, for just a second, because that's the image, that's the sermon that God gives Cain, and it's at the heart of this passage. And God's sermon illustration is of a ferocious predator, a lion, a cougar, whatever you want to call it. It's literally crouching down, and it's right about to pounce and consume Cain, right? And, uh, you know, why, you know, um, who's a cat person here? Raise your hand if you're a cat person. Okay, good. There's only like three of you. I love that. I'm a dog person. If you have a cat, if you can imagine a cat, okay, we'll call him Garfield, the cat. Why, why do cats crouch down? Why do they get smaller? I mean, if you're going into battle, you know you're supposed to go like, you know, like stand up straight. But why would an, a cat crouch down? You know, um, you know, whenever you're hiking around Jacksonville, you know, you're looking for that cougar tail, that terrifying cougar tail, right? You know, it's like the periscope on a submarine. You know, why, would a, why does a mountain lion bother crouching down really low? So you don't see it coming. So it looks smaller than it is. You see, and seeing sin clearly, seeing sin clearly means that we have to be wise enough to know that sin always looks smaller than we think it is. Your cat crouches down for a reason. You know, for the fun fact, if your cat was bigger than you, you would be dead, okay? That's why I'm a dog person. 
if dogs were bigger than us, we'd all be okay. If cats were bigger than us, there'd be like no hope for me. I'm sorry, cat people. I, I can see you frowning. Um, you can tell me about your cat later today, and I'm sure it'll be a lovely cat. And what's the image that God is giving him? It's like a cougar crouching down, ready to consume Cain. And really, friends, I mean, if you really, really want to follow Christ, what that means so profoundly on a level is that you see sin for what it is. I think that's the hardest thing that I do as a pastor is try to tell people the danger of sin, to tell them that behind that door, there is a crouching predator that will rip everything that you have from you. And it, if it can, it'll throw you to hell for eternity. Its desire is to consume you. Its desire is to consume everything about you. It'll show you no mercy. It'll show you no quarter. What is the Lord preaching to Cain? Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Sin is crouching at your door. You know, this is why that great Puritan preacher, John Owen, famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. <laughs> be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, sin for as destructive as the Bible says it is. So how do we respond to this? Because we all know where this story is headed. Does Cain accept the warning? Does Cain listen to his fatherly advice? Does Cain respond with a heart that's responsive to the Lord? Well, remember, God is responding to Cain's heart. Uh, you know, Cain's anger, uh, his response to the Lord reveals what was going on all throughout this story. So what happens? Well, look at verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, again, what does he do? Ask him a question. Where's your brother? Is God looking for information or is he looking for repentance? Where's Abel, your brother? And how does Cain respond? Does he repent? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Some of those famous words in Genesis, revealing a heart of anger. And what does the Lord do again? Verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And now when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's greater than I can bear. God, you're being too rough on me. Behold, you've driven me away today from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And then what does the Lord say? Serves you right. Is that how God responds? Serves you right. Is that how God responds? The God of all grace amazingly says, not so, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then God's gracious providence, he put a mark on Cain. We don't know what it is, uh, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and sandaled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
where John Steinbeck got the title of his book. So what is it that we're supposed to see from the ground? What happens on the ground? Uh, well, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we kicked off Lent on Ash Wednesday, and uh, I suggested to you that Lent was a time to sort of get a lay of the land. It was a time to sort of pause, to step back and get a lay of the land. And uh, the best example I can give of that is from that great British adventure guy, Bear Grylls. You know who Bear Grylls is? You know, the British guy who's always like jumping out of airplanes and landing in like, you know, nowhere, North Dakota, and he tries to survive for a few days until the, you know, camera crew saves him or whatever. Uh, well, uh, you know, when you think about Bear Grylls being dropped off in the middle of the forest, you know, you learn something watching the show, which is the first thing that Bear Grylls does. The, this is a life lesson, right? You can hold on to this for the rest of your life if you need to, if you're ever, you know, jumping out of a helicopter in unknown territory. Uh, if that's you, the, one of the, the most important thing that Bear Grylls does is he does what first? You might know. <laughs> you know, he scurries up a tree, you know, and uh, he gets a survey of the land. Because he needs to identify what? Water. He needs to know if there's a giant ridge on the other side. He gets a lay of the land. He looks around and then he tries to figure out how to get out of this. And what I love so much about that illustration is for you to understand what's going on in this story and the way that the Bible weaves it through the history of redemption, you need to sort of scurry up the tree for a moment and get a lay of the land and to see what's happening on the ground. And you don't just need it up close, you need to get the wide angle view. So what is this that we see in the story? Well, I mean, most profoundly, actions have consequences, right? Actions have consequences. Your parents taught you that, right? Uh, what does Cain do for a living? What does Cain do for a living? He's a worker of the what? Ground. Interesting, right? He's a worker of the ground. Funny way to call someone a farmer, wouldn't you say? A worker of the ground. Well, then he kills his brother on the ground. And then the ground opens its mouth and accepts the blood of his brother. And then the ground cries out to God because injustice has happened. And then God curses what? The ground. So that even Cain's livelihood is now affected. And God says, for the rest of your life, you're gonna wander the earth looking for somewhere where you can grow something again. And then that image of Cain wandering the earth See that in verse 14, he says, you've driven me away today, I'm gonna be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. You know, uh, I think what's being established here is sin will always, always work to isolate you. It will always work to drive you away from community. I mean, that is one of the uh, modus operandi of sin. Sin crouches, it seems smaller than you think it is, it's hiding behind a door, and it will always drive you away from community. It will always drive you away from people. Its desire is to completely isolate you. We see that over and over and over again in the Bible. Uh, you know the story. There's the 12 sons of Israel. <laughs> there, I got it. Technically, it's like 13, but you know what I mean. The 12 sons, right? And uh, later on in Genesis, in this same book, we'll hear another story. And 11 brothers decide to do what? To poor Joseph. They decide to kill him. And they say, ah, we don't want to kill him. That'll get messy. So let's just sell him into slavery. And Judah, who's an okay guy, pretty good guy, 
starts to feel a little guilty about it, right? And he's like, ah, maybe we don't, you know, kill him. Well, then, you know, Reuben thinks, oh, maybe I'll go back and save him. Well, then sure enough, he's taken away to Egypt. And you know what happens next? What does Judah do? Judah packs his bags and moves away from his family. Just packs his bags, moves off. Why? Because he's engaged in sin and he's ashamed. And he becomes a wanderer on the earth. In the New Testament, we see this. There's a man possessed by demons. Where does he live? He's cutting himself at night. He's literally possessed by a legion of demons. Where is he? He's isolated, he's by himself, and he's among the tombs. Sin seeks to isolate you. Sin's goal is to isolate you. So what happens on the ground? Well, the ground is cursed. Cain wanders. So what are we supposed to see from the story? Well, one, we're supposed to see sin more clearly, right? It seeks to isolate you. It seeks to drive you from community. Uh, it seeks to take a small resentment. You know, small enough, you probably couldn't even see it. You know, um, you know, a virus could fit between my two fingers, right? We'd never know it. Sin is just like that. Just a tiny little spark, and it can grow and grow and grow. That's all it takes. So what are we supposed to see? Well, the way that the Bible will look at this story is they'll say, what are we supposed to see from Cain? And then what are we supposed to see from Abel? What we're supposed to see from Cain, right, is all those warnings I've been talking about. But what are we supposed to see from righteous Abel, as Jesus will call him? Uh, Jesus talks about Abel. He says, from the time of righteous Abel to the time of Zechariah, you know, God's prophets have been murdered. Righteous people have died for the Lord since the beginning of time. Well, what are you and I supposed to see from Abel on the ground? Well, the book of Hebrews says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying, that his life testimony still speaks to Christians today. But how is it that Abel still speaks? I mean, he's barely a blip on the map in the Bible. What is Abel speaking today to us? What is he saying? Well, think back to the story. What's happening with Abel? A righteous man gives of a self-sacrifice to the Lord. And what happens to him? His blood is spilled on the ground. A righteous man dies in the process of giving an offering to the Lord. And friends, the way that Abel still speaks to you and me today is because he points us to the ultimate righteous man who gave a sacrifice of himself for not his sin, but for the sin of people like Cain, for wretched sinners like you and me. And he spilled his blood and it fell where? On the ground. And Hebrews says that when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, it says you and I come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, the blood of Abel was a cry for justice to be done. And it was a reminder that actions have consequences, that you and I are the descendants of people like Cain. It is a reminder that you and I carry on the family tradition 
of dysfunction and sin. We ignore the danger. We ignore the fatherly advice. But there is one who has come to reveal the God of all grace who shed his blood to wipe away all our sin. And friends, it happened on the ground. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, friends, I implore you, I implore you to see sin differently. Uh, Your tendency is to do this. Your tendency is to turn into Cain. But friends, Jesus says the gospel gives sight to the blind. It gives you new lenses and it allows you to see that no matter what you and I have done, no matter what you think your sin is, no matter if you don't think you're worthy of forgiveness, there is better blood on the ground and it washes away everything. Now friends, this is an invitation to see the gospel. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for the spilled blood of Jesus who washes away all our sins. Now, Lord, we thank you uh, that your word warns us. We thank you for the grace that it offers. Uh, Lord, I pray for myself and everyone in this room that we would hear your word, your warning, and your grace. And Father, we love you, and we know that any victory we have over sin is not possible because of our strength, but because of Christ in us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fan into flame the righteous desire to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are worthy of everything. Lord, we pray that we would grow closer and closer to you. Father, this morning we pray not just for ourselves, but we pray for all the churches in the valley. Lord, would they have that righteous desire to love you. Lord, we pray for Grace Church in Central Point. Lord, we pray for the families who are still mourning. We pray for those who aren't able to be here physically. Lord, that you would give them encouragement, endurance, and a hope. Father, would would you open wide the aperture of their sight to see you more and more. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.